welcome to the Benchers Room in King's Inns and to the fourth lecture in this year's Green Street Lecture Series. I'm delighted to introduce Bobby McDonough, who will deliver this lecture. Bobby is a retired diplomat. During his distinguished career, he served as Permanent Representative of Ireland to the EU. He also served as Ambassador of Ireland to Malaysia, to the United Kingdom and to Italy. He also served as a member of the cabinet of two EU commissioners. The topic for Bobby's lecture is Diplomacy and Identity, Understanding, Managing and Celebrating Complexity. I'm delighted and honoured to have been invited to contribute to the Green Street Lecture Series. When I started reflecting on a possible theme for my talk today, I reread Robert Emmett's speech from the dock of Green Street Courthouse, which has given its name to this lecture series. Emmett's memorably brave words in the face of aggressive heckling from the bench. It occurred to me that Emmett's famous request that his gravestone should remain uninscribed with any epitaph until other times could do justice to his character can be understood, amongst other things, as a statement about his identity. Emmett considered his identity so inextricably bound up with his cause that he desired future generations to breathe not his name, as the song puts it, until Ireland had taken its place among the nations of the earth. It occurred to me as someone privileged to have spent four decades as an Irish diplomat, proud to have made a small contribution to Ireland taking its place among the nations, that I might offer you today some thoughts drawing on my personal experience on diplomacy and identity, understanding, managing and celebrating complexity. Diplomats are offered a unique insight into their country's identity. In far-flung parts of the world, their national flag flies outside their office building, and if they are appointed ambassador, also outside their home. They are deemed in many formal respects to be living on their own national territory. If posted to a multilateral organisation such as the European Union or the United Nations, they are defined by the country nameplate behind which they sit. In the case of bilateral embassies to other countries, the assertion by diplomats of their national singularity is juxtaposed directly on a daily basis with that of their host country and intertwined with the rich, with the rich variety of nationalities represented in a diplomatic corps from around the world. In the case of multilateral diplomatic missions, the pursuit of national interests is defined not by national introspection or insularity, but by openness to other nations and engagement with their interests. Thus, in various ways, a diplomat is well positioned to obtain insights into national identity. A diplomat from Ireland, for example, inevitably learns to see Ireland through the eyes of others and has a unique opportunity to appreciate where Ireland's distinctive foreign policy positioning fits into the jigsaw of international interdependence. An Irish diplomat's understanding of our national interests is enhanced by the daily process of explaining and advancing those interests. Moreover, the pursuit of those interests is strengthened by the inevitable challenges to them and greatly enriched by an appreciation of the legitimate aspirations and perceptions of other countries and the consequent understanding of the necessary complexity of diplomacy. In my personal diplomatic experience, there have been four principal arenas in which identity has played an important role. The European Union, the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom's relations with Ireland, and the Northern Ireland peace process. Before turning to those four themes, I would like to offer a few more general thoughts about identity. The reality of identity is usually complex, yet probably for that very reason, the politics of identity are often dangerously oversimplified. Almost everyone has a rich, composite identity. In my own case, for example, one grandfather briefly head of the IRB and the other an RIC man. I imagine most of you listening to this lecture can report similar intricacies in your background of allegiance, affiliation, nationality, religion or race. You may have come across cases like the French diplomat who told me recently that his two grandfathers had both fought in the Great War, one in French uniform and the other in German. Yet when it comes to the politics of conflict and confrontation, such complexity of identity is usually swept aside. Sometimes this may, up to a point, be inevitable or even on occasion necessary. 
But we should at least be aware that once we man the political barricades, we are obliged to wear our chosen uniform and wave our chosen flag. The Brexit experience bears striking witness to this phenomenon, with, on the one hand, the determined assertion of Englishness above the aspirations of other parts of the United Kingdom, and on the other, the relentless presentation of European identity as being in contradiction with Britishness rather than what it truly was, namely an enriching expression of what it is to be British. There were times in our own history when it was probably right, as the song says, to wrap the green flag round us, but as a general philosophy, it is not one that is conducive to the self-awareness and understanding of others that are necessary for the identification, pursuit and achievement of our interests. The contradiction between the reality of identity and the politics of identity is perfectly illustrated by the present case of a British Prime Minister, great-grandson of a Turkish journalist, Ali Kemal, whipping up imaginary fears for short-term political advantage about the arrival of Turkish workers into his country. Another example was that one of the small number of people arrested for disturbances during the Queen's visit to Ireland in 2011 was detained wearing a Manchester United shirt. A sense of identity is something we tend to crave, especially in our unsettled and perplexing world. When many aspects of who we are seem to be in flux, we often seek simple, straightforward identities and sometimes in surprising places. It is said that sport is the new religion, and that is more than a flippant metaphor. Sporting allegiance often breaks down on national or local lines, but in the increasingly pervasive world of football, for example, the British Premiership being the most obvious case, Fans from around the world cheer passionately every week for teams based in another country, composed of a rich miscellany of players, very few of whom, if any, share any real-life identity with the fan or even any personal connection to the city for which their team is named. This transcending of the barriers of place and nationality and race is to be welcomed, but at the same time it gives us an important insight into identity. Football fans talk about their team, the stadium of which they may never have visited, as we and us. With the decline of religion, where else in our Western societies than in sporting stadiums do we see on a weekly basis such a simple, proud, assertive and passionate identity and faith? Personally, I have learned two important things about identity from being a soccer fan, apart from the sad reality that supporting Spurs is a mug's game. Two things that are relevant to the substantive issues I will be discussing today. I have learned, first, that the emotional allegiance that flows from a sporting identity clouds my judgment, both as regards refereeing decisions and predicting outcomes. Second, I have learned that a common sporting allegiance can occasionally contribute to a shared identity that transcends more serious divides. When I was ambassador in London, I became friendly with the then Northern Ireland First Minister, Peter Robinson, after discovering that he was a fellow Spurs fan. We attended several matches together at White Hart Lane. Our substantive positions and perspectives on Northern Ireland remained, needless to say, unchanged. However, the possibility of an Irish diplomat and the head of the DUP sharing an allegiance and a passion in a non-political sphere took the edge off some of the sharper dividing lines of identity. It was a worthwhile example of the value of soft diplomacy. Turning to diplomacy itself and to my four substantive themes today, I propose to look first at the importance of identity as it arises in the context of the European Union. I spent nearly 30 years dealing with EU negotiations in Dublin and Brussels, and another 10 representing Ireland in other European Union capitals. Some might consider that Don Pedro, in Much Ado About Nothing, was somewhat prophetic about today's European Union when he describes what the experience might be to be a Dutchman today, a Frenchman tomorrow, or in the shape of two countries at once, as a German from the waist downward, all slops, and a Spaniard from the hip upward, no doublet. But of course, in terms of identity, the EU requires no one to be such a harlequin or chameleon. No one need share, in the European context, Samuel Johnson's fear that a man may be so much of everything that he is nothing of anything, or Theresa May's more recent bogeyman for tabloid consumption, that anyone who is comfortable with more than a simplistic insular identity is a citizen of nowhere. I would like to suggest six points about identity and the European Union. First, 
The European institutions are not the netherworld of Brexiteer fantasy, in which ruthless Europeans have abandoned all sense of national identity, lost in some bureaucratic melting pot. On the contrary, Europe's strength is precisely that it respects and is enriched by its diverse perspectives and cultures. During my years sitting around many Brussels negotiating tables, the distinctiveness of the different nationalities, far from becoming blurred, grew more sharply defined. The mindsets of those nationalities, their ways of expressing themselves, their ways of doing business, their policy priorities and historical perspectives. It is hard, in fact, to imagine any forum in which the uniqueness of different national characteristics is more evident than in the EU Council of Ministers and Committee of Permanent Representatives. Even if generalisations are necessarily only able to grasp part of the truth, my Brussels memory bank contains in its vaults many vivid recollections, including the philosophising of Italians, the unyieldingness of Spaniards, the preachiness of the Dutch, and the certitude of the British. My second point about identity in the European Union starts from recognition of the simple reality that each member state pursues its own interests. There is nothing remotely shocking about that. The EU was created to resolve real differences between countries, not to wave a magic wand and make them disappear. Every time I read a headline about some disagreement having emerged between member states, I feel like pointing out that the newspaper has got it the wrong way round. The member states do not exist in a state of harmonious accord from which every disagreement represents some peculiar deviation. Rather, the EU has developed complex and subtle decision-making mechanisms, unique to the world and indeed to history, precisely for resolving peacefully, constructively and to mutual advantage the conflicting interests that necessarily exist or arise between countries. As an Irish negotiator in the EU, I was never called on to act otherwise than in the pursuit of Ireland's interests. Nor, of course, would I have considered doing so. The same is true of all the public servants I worked with across every government department. And other member states, of course, approached negotiations in the same way. There was never any question of me taking a European position as opposed to an Irish one, or of assuming some vague, detached European identity in place of my Irishness. However, at the same time, the crucial point was and remains the need to recognise that Irish identity, like that of every member state, embraces a significant European dimension and that national interests necessarily involve an important European element. Ireland's national interests must be understood in their broadest sense if we are to pursue them effectively. If we seek respect for our own national identity, we must equally respect the identity of others. If we wish others to move from hardline positions that are inimical to our own interests in the EU, we must likewise be prepared to understand their concerns and to accept something less than our own ideal outcome. One of our most profound national interests is an EU that functions effectively. This point, simple though it may seem, bears emphasis because it is sometimes misunderstood, misunderstood in this country as elsewhere. Intelligent compromise, as in all negotiations, is a tool to advance interests, not a surrendering of them. The winner takes it all is an ABBA song, not a negotiating strategy. The fundamental misunderstanding in the United Kingdom that led to Brexit was the belief that compromise is a dirty word. After Cameron's government took office during my time as ambassador in London, I found myself in the absurd position of explaining to new British ministers the reality of how effective the UK was in advancing its interest in Brussels. The great Brexit lie was that you can have your cake and eat it, a fiction that defies not the laws of the EU, but the laws of physics. However, Brexit's underlying folly was that no bread is better than three quarters of a loaf. The repudiation of any serious understanding of the necessity for compromise can lead, as it did in the case of the UK, as well as in the case of Trump's America, to the dangerous fallacy that the professional pursuit by diplomats of national interests represents a caving in to the interests of others. The third relevant lesson to be drawn from the European Union is that different identities can and do coexist comfortably and creatively. Being Swedish or Slovenian is not an alternative to being European, it is a way of being European. Moreover, feeling German and European does not prevent someone feeling Bavarian as well. Indeed, the EU validates regional identity rather than undermining it. Most Europeans are comfortable with such multiple layered identities. The flying of the EU flag alongside national flags 
individually or collectively, enriches those national flags rather than diminishing them. The fundamental cultural split in the UK, to which I will return later, could be said to be between those who recognise that different identities can be complementary and those who see all identities as being in conflict with each other. I would add that the broadly amicable coexistence of national identities in the, in the EU, often underestimated by the media's understandable need for a narrative of confrontation, is reflected in an ethos of accommodation that for the most part characterises the European Union, Union's way of doing business. Ireland has been outvoted no more than about half a dozen times in nearly half a century of EU membership. If a member state sets out genuine concerns, they will either be taken on board as enriching the proposal under discussion, or, if that is not possible, every effort will be made to find some way of addressing those concerns. Where qualified majority voting rather than unanimity applies, it is generally used as an encouragement towards compromise rather than as a headcount to achieve the triumph of the majority view. Perhaps somewhere in the psychology of national negotiators in the European Union is an awareness of the wisdom of the Duke of Wellington's comment as he surveyed the carnage on the day after the Battle of Waterloo. The next worst thing to a great defeat is a great victory. Fourthly, the EU's understanding of and openness to the complexity of identity is a manifestation of its wider vocation to assist in managing the reality of our complicated world. A common theme of all populists, from Trump to Salvini, from Le Pen to, at least on Mondays, Wednesdays, Wednesdays and Fridays, Boris Johnson, is that there are simple answers to complicated questions, that the tangled truth can be boiled down to a late-night tweet or a three-word slogan such as take back control or get Brexit done. It is small wonder that populists are deeply hostile to the European Union, with its complex mechanisms, its relative ease with the intricacies of our modern world, and its openness to the compromises that reality entails. People sometimes mock or laugh at the convolutedness of the EU's decision-making procedures that are necessary in, in a union of 27 sovereign democratic countries. To those I would reply that the EU's way of doing business is indeed hilarious, but not quite as funny as the centuries of war that preceded it. Nor is it as amusing as the casual philosophy that characterises so much of today's world that the battle is necessarily to the strong, and the weak must go to the wall. My fifth point about identity and the EU concerns the European Parliament and the European Commission, in both of which I worked for several years, even if the bulk of my experience was represent representing Ireland in the Council of Ministers. It is worth noting that the issue of identity presents itself somewhat differently in those institutions compared to the Council. Members of the European Parliament, of course, rightly attach significant importance to the national interests of the country in which they were elected. However, this is modulated and refined in three respects that do not apply in the same way in the Council of Ministers. First, MEPs have regard as appropriate to the constituencies which, which elected them and to where they may face election again. Second, more significantly, they sit in the Europe-wide political groups to which they belong, the policies of which they help to shape and to which they owe significant allegiance. There is a constant interplay between being, say, a German and a member of the European People's Party or a Spaniard and belonging to the European Socialists and Democrats group. Third, as MEPs are part of a supranational parliament, the European dimension of policy formulation looms somewhat larger than in the Council of Ministers, where the underlying pursuit of European objectives is refracted through national positions. The European Commission, where I worked in the cabinets of two Irish commissioners, is in my experience Europe's most complex experiment in identity. I sometimes compared working in the Commission to three-dimensional chess. The unique additional challenge in the Commission, that extra dimension, is to come to grips with the complexity of motivation, which in turn significantly reflects the different identities at play. In the Council of Ministers, identity was relatively straightforward. If someone was sitting behind, say, the Finnish nameplate, they were representing Finnish views. In the Commission, if someone walked like a duck and talked like a duck, it did not necessarily follow that they were a duck. It was necessary always to deduce whether a colleague was reflecting a European view, their Commissioner's view, their Directorate General's view, their personal view, a national perspective, or perhaps some deal that they might have struck on a different issue. By far the predominant overall motivation in the Commission, reflected in its legislative proposals and other output, is to advance European interests. Overall, it does that impressively. 
but the internal procedures leading to that end represent a maze of competitiveness and complex, complex identities. I would add that individual commissioners, reflecting their oath of office, prioritised the European interest and spent 90% of their time dealing with issues not specifically related to their country of origin. If a commissioner to, were to wave a national flag as if sitting behind a national nameplate in the Council of Ministers, they would not only get no traction on the issue in question, but would undermine their wider standing and influence. However, the Commission's output is at the same time greatly enhanced by having a commissioner from each member state who can explain national perspectives, draw attention to national sensitivities and soften unnecessary rigidities flowing from a centralised perspective. Finally, the EU and its member states take a more sophisticated and sensible view of advancing their national interests than President Trump's America First policy with its many dismal echoes around the world. Of course, the individual member states, including Ireland, do put their national interests first, as I did myself over four decades as a diplomat. It was my job and part of, of my identity. In a similar way, the EU as a whole aims to advance its own overall interests, as reflected, for example, in its recent focus on strategic autonomy. autonomy. The difference, however, is that Trump's preening boast about putting America first, like its imitators elsewhere around the world, is not truly directed towards advancing US interests in the reality of an interdependent world. It is first and foremost about denying that other countries have interests and about pretending that America can, see, can succeed as a country without respect for the interests of others, without abiding by international treaties and without engaging constructively with multilateral organisations or processes. The international identity of the United States promulgated by Trump was an insular one. Far from putting America first, his philosophy of I'm the king of the castle was ultimately damaging to his country's prosperity, standing and well-being. Fortunately for us, the European Union's identity, its very DNA, is about engagement with the world on climate change, the digital agenda, foreign policy and trade. The EU now has a like-minded partner in President Biden and together they are set to work together to provide global leadership in support of multilateralism and the rule of law. The second major area in relation to which I would like to set out some basic ideas on the rule of identity is the United Kingdom, where I served as ambassador for four years. The starting point, it seems to me, is to appreciate that our neighbour has, for many years, been going through a crisis of identity. In 2013, in my final report as ambassador in London, when the Brexit referendum still seemed little more than a whimsical piece of party management in David Cameron's eye, I offered the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin some reflections on the state of Britain. If you will allow me to quote some paragraphs from that report, this is what I wrote in 2013. One sometimes has the impression these days that there are two Britons. On the one hand, there is the open, tolerant, modern Britain, the Britain which exercises significant influence in the wider world through its engagement in international organisations, through its culture and language, through the prioritisation of its foreign policy. The Britain which took the London Olympics in its relaxed stride and celebrated the diversity represented by its athletes, the Britain which welcomed, without the batting of an eyelid, the 150,000 German football fans who recently came to London for the All-German Champions League final, the Britain where so many Irish find a warm and welcoming home, the Britain several of whose schools take the trouble of laying wreaths, which I have seen at the German war cemetery near Ypres, with cards bearing message messages such as, in memory of brave men who died for their country. On the other hand, there is also a more uncertain, backward-looking, narrowly nationalistic Britain, the Britain which has lost confidence in its ability to defend its interests in the multilateral, globalised world of the 21st century. The Britain which increasingly allows UKIP to set the political agenda on immigration and Europe. The Britain which would rather undermine an international court which had played a central role in establishing than implement a straightforward ECHR judgment on prisoners' voting rights. The Britain which sees its values as uniquely attractive and at the same time uniquely under threat. The tabloid Britain that hankers after a world of lost empire and lost certainties. The Britain that replaced Ireland several years ago in thanking God that it's surrounded by water. That's what I wrote in 2013. Looking back on that report, I would be tempted to claim some degree of prescience were it not for the fact that I failed to anticipate that just three years later, the more uncertain, backward-looking Britain, which I had described, 
would narrowly win a referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union. I also underestimated how significant a role xenophobia would play, a fact now, of course, vociferously denied, in convincing a significant part of the British electorate to reverse the UK's justifiably confident engagement with the world around it. Nevertheless, my identification of the two Britons remained largely valid throughout the following years of Brexit posturing and negotiations, as symbolised by the rival tribes camped outside the Houses of Parliament every day. It still seems a not unreasonable assessment, both of things how, were, how things were in 2013 and how they continue to be today. Notwithstanding the Conservative Party's resounding victory in the 2019 first-past-the-post general election, a majority of voters in that election, remarkably underreported in the British media, actually voted for parties supporting a second EU referendum. In parallel with this profound cultural divide, the UK was increasingly confronting an identity crisis about its nationhood. A small experience I had illustrates this. I was travelling on a train to Cardiff in 2013 when a young woman sitting next to me, who was completing a passport application form, turned to me and asked politely if I could tell her whether she had been born in the United Kingdom, in Great Britain or in England. I could understand her dilemma. The team which had represented the UK at the previous year's Olympics called itself Team GB. The people who most assertively proclaimed their primary identity as British were in Northern Ireland. A referendum was pending the following year on whether Scotland, which does not question its Britishness, was to remain part of the United Kingdom. And serious arguments were at the time being put forward as to whether English MPs alone should have the final say on matters not directly affecting other parts of the United Kingdom. For the record, I told the young woman on the train that the name of her country was the United Kingdom. These two major challenges of identity, the cultural divide in society and the definition of nationhood, led, in my observation, to five significant developments in the United Kingdom, which had started long before my posting to London and which have continued ever since. First, there was the rise of English nationalism. Brexit was an English nationalist project from the start. The views of the majority of people in Scotland and Northern Ireland were deemed utterly irrelevant to the campaign for the United Kingdom's departure from the European Union. Their views were ignored in the conception of the referendum campaign and dismissed in the course of it, as indeed were the consequences of ignoring those views for the future unity of the United Kingdom. Subsequent to the referendum, the disregard for views in Scotland and Northern Ireland, where most people would have wished, at the very least, to see a close and friendly relationship with the EU after Brexit, continued unabated in the London government's approach to the Brexit negotiations and is now sadly reflected in the minimalist trade deal sought and delivered by the Johnson government. Despite ongoing lip service to the idea of bringing the United Kingdom together, the London government policy continues to be driven by English nationalism, with zero account being taken of the views of the other constituent parts of the United Kingdom, the consequences of which could be seen in the radically different outcomes in last month's election in England, Scotland and Wales, respectively. Most people in Scotland, Wales and indeed Northern Ireland, in common, of course, with many in England itself, do not celebrate every slap in the face proffered to Britain's European neighbours, such as the gratuitous attempt to downgrade the status of the EU ambassador in London, now reversed, nor do they cheer gormlessly when Royal Navy vessels are dispatched to hover around a fishing dispute in Jersey in a shameless pre-election stunt. Identity will play a central role in the UK's upcoming constitutional debates. Most Scottish people remain comfortable with their multiple identities. Even those who favour Scottish independence seem happy to consider themselves British as well as Scottish and European. In Northern Ireland, to which I will return in more detail, respect for different identities lies at the very heart of the Good Friday Agreement, which acknowledges the right of each person to choose to be British or Irish or both, and all that under the umbrella of a shared European identity that provided the overall context for the peace process. Into those china shops of delicate, interwoven and overlapping identities strode the great bull of Brexit, asserting the purity and superiority of one single identity on its triumphant rosette, Englishness. A YouGov poll during the Brexit negotiations provided an interesting insight into the growing dominance for many of their specifically English identity. The poll found that 63% and 59% respectively of members of the British Conservative Party would prioritise Brexit over keeping Scotland and Northern Ireland in the United Kingdom. 
As the recent elections to the Scottish Parliament confirmed, the majority of members of the Conservative Party may well see their order of priorities translated into reality. Another poll last year found that 49% of English people would support Scottish independence, running neck and neck with the enthusiasm for that objective in Scotland itself. The rise of English nationalism can also be observed in the growing use of the English flag, the red cross on a white background. The use of that flag by sporting fans supporting a team representing England as a single nation of the UK is, of course, inevitable and normal. A sea of Union Jacks would make little sense at an England-Wales rugby match. But the same English flag, through no fault of the overwhelming majority of decent English people, also grew to symbolise, like it or not, the extreme right and to carry some connotations of a nasty, exclusive white identity. The second development in the UK's identity drama, paradoxically, was that the growing allegiance to a specifically English identity has been accompanied by a renewed trumpeting of Britishness. When I used to attend the annual Tory party conference as ambassador, as an observer I hasten to add, the only thing guaranteed to elicit a round of applause was any reference to preserving the unity of the United Kingdom. I imagine that is still the case. In other words, the very members of the Conservative Party who are comparatively relaxed about whether Scotland actually remains part of the UK in comparison to their passion for what they see as England's destiny still retain a non-dominant but knee-jerk British gene in their DNA. This assertion of British identity was also to be seen monthly, like clockwork, in the European Parliament, when Farage and his motley crew would line themselves up smirking like schoolboys behind their Union Jacks. It was also to be seen in Boris Johnson's antics, including as Mayor of London, photo-opping on a zip wire with a large Union Jack in each hand. But the message that both men were sending to the people of Scotland, for example, and around the world, was not one of pride in British identity, but one of English eccentricity. The third reaction to the UK's identity challenge has been to revert to the past. If your country is divided, both within society and between its nations, the solution for some has been to return by fictional time travel to one rightly honoured period when the country stood united. Although many now strive to rewrite the narrative of the Brexit referendum, the desire to relive and even of some to refight the Second World War undoubtedly played a part in the psychology of Brexit. It was relentlessly stoked by British tabloids and encouraged by some members of the government. It is impossible, alas, to erase from one's, from one's memory the preposterous references to the EU administering punishment beatings, the shameful comparisons of the EU to Nazi Germany, and the description of decent members of the British Parliament, including, as it happens, Winston Churchill's grandson, as collaborators and traitors. Brexit seeks a new English-British identity in the comfort of the past rather than in the reality of the future. Fourth, the hard Brexit sought and achieved by the Johnson government, that is, a more insular country, willfully distanced economically and psychologically from its neighbourhood, has required the conjuring up of a new fictional international identity, namely Global Britain. A United Kingdom, now largely cut off from its natural hinterland, has been forced to create this alternative identity. The Johnson government has chosen to present the country as a buccaneering trading nation, free from the shackles of its neighbourhood, committed to deepening its ties with the Commonwealth, its navy sailing the seven seas in search of new adventure, or at least sending one frigate to the South China Sea and two small boats to Jersey. The notion of going global is based on the false premise that membership of the European Union was an alternative to going global rather than a more effective way of doing so. I genuinely wish the UK well, but wherever it now turns up around the world, including in Commonwealth countries, dressed in its spanking new global livery, it will find the EU and its member states already in place wielding more influence and negotiating better trade deals. The fifth and final reaction in the UK to its recent insecurity about identity has been to propagate a dangerous view of what constitutes the British people. The electorate, which was not presented with the glimmer of a perspective of what Brexit might mean, was deeply divided in 2016 and remains so today. But a misleading narrative about what, quote, the British people voted for has been systematically deployed since then. The fact that one side won a narrow referendum victory does not justify the mantra of Prime Minister May and her successor that they were simply implementing what, quote, the British people had voted for. Apparently, the harder the Brexit deal they were dreaming up, the more the British people had voted for it. Winning a referendum or a majority of seats in the House of Commons is an important democratic event, but it does not give the victors the right to interpret or assert what the British people as a whole want. 
What they really mean is what half the British people want, or when it comes to the unnecessarily hard version of Brexit pursued by Johnson, significantly less than half the British people. This last approach to the dilemma of the complexity of British identity is a brilliantly simple one. Pretend that the half of the population that don't agree with you doesn't exist. The history of the 20th century reminds us that the identification of only one part of a country's population with its people carries dangers in the long run. Let me now turn to the third issue, namely identity as it arises in the context of British-Irish relations. When Samuel Beckett was asked by a French journalist whether he was English, he famously replied, au contraire. His reply was witty, but also contained an important truth. A large part of the definition of what it is to be Irish, or I should say nationalist Irish, is precisely that we are not British. We don't generally use the term British Isles, not in order to make a political point, but because there is no sense in which we actually see ourselves as British. This binary approach to Ireland's most important bilateral relationship somewhat glosses over the historic intermingling of our peoples and the depth of our friendship today. In both of our countries, the composition of very many families reflects interaction between our islands. Porrick Pierce's father was English, James Connolly was Scottish. The list of members of the House of Commons, especially Labour members, reads at points like an Irish telephone directory. 10% of the UK population has at least one Irish grandparent. Nevertheless, our non-Britishness is an important facet of our identity. Perhaps because of our geographical proximity to such a large neighbour and our long struggle for independence, Ireland's assertion of sovereign identity required us to proclaim our non-Britishness. In contrast, Australia and New Zealand, for example, on the far side of the world, include the Union Jack in their flags and are relatively comfortable with the British monarch as their head of state. Ireland and the United Kingdom's shared membership of the European Union, while fully respecting our respective national identities, softened over several decades the edges of how we see ourselves and each other, not by blurring our identities in the slightest, but by setting them in a wider European context, a context in which, for the first time in history, our two countries found ourselves pursuing shared objectives and resolving problems through agreed structures, a context in which we elected members to the same parliament, in which we discovered that we shared a way of doing business, in which we spoke the same language, not only linguistically, but also metaphorically. Importantly, we shared a European flag, one that didn't threaten in any way our allegiance to our own respective national flags, a common flag that provided the context for the tricolour and Union Jack to fly comfortably side by side for the first time in history. The Queen's visit to Ireland in 2011 represented an immensely important further step in terms of acknowledgement and respect by the United Kingdom and Ireland for each other's identities. There were a few objections here in advance of the visit on the basis that it would represent some bending of the knee on our part. Nothing could have been further from the truth. A state visit is the highest form of respect between two countries. It is the ultimate recognition of sovereign equality. When the Queen laid a wreath in honour of those who died for Irish freedom, and President McAleese joined her the next day in laying a wreath for the Irish who died in British uniform, it represented a unique reconciliation between Britishness and Irishness, while not taking a jot from the distinctiveness of either. Neither country was asked to airbrush the past, to underestimate the challenges of the present, or to pretend that we will not have disagreements in the future. But it appeared during those historic days that our identities were no longer a reason for conflict. Alas, as Shakespeare put it in one of his sonnets, when I consider everything that grows holds in perfection but a little moment. Brexit has thrown up new challenges to the British-Irish relationship. Apart from the fact that the UK is no longer part of the shared European project that brought us together and beyond the new trade barriers, much more substantial than Brexit required them to be, Brexit has thrown up challenges for us in terms of identity. The new harmony between Britishness and Irishness reflected in the Queen's visit that's had such a re resonance around the world has taken a jolt. Irish and British paths are now diverging, but so are our underlying psychologies. Our two countries now understand sovereignty in radically different ways. The UK government seems to have convinced itself that its very narrow interpretation of sovereignty as a family heirloom to be hidden under the Dominic Cummings memorial seat in the Downing Street garden makes it somehow more independent and free. For Ireland, sovereignty is rather something to be exercised confidently and sometimes shared in the promotion of our interests and values in the world. Our countries also have utterly different takes on what going, gl going global means. For the UK, it involves cutting itself off from its neighbourhood. For Ireland, it means working with our neighbours as a platform for wider international engagement. 
For the UK, taking back control is about going it alone. We recognise that we can best control outcomes in pursuit of our interests by working with our national partners. None of this means that the progress of recent years in British-Irish relations has all been lost. It does, however, mean that there has been a serious setback and that there are new challenges that it would be foolish to ignore and that we will have to work hard to overcome. Finally, let me turn to the last of my four main themes, namely identity and Northern Ireland. It is clear that an increasing number of people in Northern Ireland no longer wish to identify as nationalist or unionist. It also seems to be the case that many are now open to exploring creative ways of blending their Britishness and Irishness. However, at the same time, there seems little doubt that despite many nuances and complexities, the conflict between Britishness and Irishness remains close to the heart of the problems of the past and to the challenges that lie ahead. In Tommy Gorman's valedictory interview on RTE with Arlene Foster, the then First Minister was dismissive of any idea that the DUP could be bought off, as it were, by compromises on flags or titles. But she also made absolutely clear that, apart from her practical concerns about Irish unity, her overriding wish and that of her party was essentially to retain their British identity. We should understand and respect that. The obvious complication, however, is that there is another community in Northern Ireland which identifies itself as Irish and whose Irish aspiration was recognised by the two governments in the Good Friday Agreement and by a large majority of the Irish people in referenda north and south as being of equal validity. The significant progress between our two islands in reconciling Britishness and Irishness has not yet been reflected in similar progress in Northern Ireland. In other words, the significant rapprochement between Britishness and Irishness in the relationship between our two islands, marked in particular by the royal visit, has not been experienced to anything like the same extent in Northern Ireland, where the respective national aspirations remain the principal dividing line in society. That is entirely understandable, since the pain across the communities in Northern Ireland as a result of the conflict is recent and real. It is much easier to achieve reconciliation between peoples who live within their own separate territories than it is to reconcile peoples who must share the same piece of land. After the Second World War, for example, France and Germany fell quickly into a new and comfortable relationship in a way that was not possible for the juxtaposed peoples of the Balkans. One of the keys to the peace process on this island has, of course, been the creation of a wider framework for addressing the difficult issues within Northern Ireland, including those of identity. The North-South and East-West relationships were essential in that regard. However, the shared space of the European Union also provided an essential wider dimension, in addition, of course, to the role of the United States. I was able to observe myself, notably when I was Ireland's permanent representative in Brussels, the impact of the financial and political support provided to Northern Ireland by the European Union and its member states, as well as how the different components of the Northern Ireland executive worked constructively together on their joint visits to Brussels. I saw also how the EU contributed to the psychological context for progress. And let me give you an example of how unionist and nationalist identities were able to sit more comfortably beside each other within a European framework. The entry of the DUP and Sinn Féin into the Northern Executive for the first time in 2007 presented a problem for both Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness with their supporters. History meant that the optics for both men were potentially very difficult. In a way, it could be seen as a problem of identity. How could two identities, which had for so long, for so long appeared irreconcilable, now begin to build a new shared identity together? Immediately after the executive was appointed, Ian Paisley contacted the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin, interestingly, rather than the Foreign Office in London, to ask if the President of the European Commission, Manuel Barroso, could be persuaded to visit Belfast immediately. As Ireland's permanent representative in Brussels, I contacted the Secretary-General of the Commission, Catherine Day, and she readily agreed to transmit Paisley's request to Barroso, who was on a visit to Washington. Within an hour, she got back to me to confirm that the President of the Commission would travel from Washington to Belfast the following day. The invitation was a personal initiative of Dr Paisley, and I have to confess I was not aware of why he had requested Barroso's presence so urgently. However, I soon found out. Most of you will recall the first photographs of Paisley and McGuinness standing together as First Minister and Deputy First Minister, looking remarkably relaxed and cheerful. The two men were actually laughing in those photos and soon acquired the nickname the Chuckle Brothers. What you may not remember is that Barroso was also in those first photographs, standing between them. Ian Paisley had had the political intelligence to recognise that such a coming together of historic foes required a wider context, even visually, a European backdrop. It was an important lesson for me about identity.
What the future holds for Northern Ireland, nobody can say for certain. But we do know that respect for identity will be a key. As long as Northern Ireland remains part of the United Kingdom, respect there for Irish identity will be of profound importance, including the permanent, ongoing, legally binding right to referenda to consider changing Northern Ireland's constitutional status. If, on the other hand, the direction of travel is towards a united Ireland, exactly the same parity of esteem for British identity will be of paramount importance. In this country, we would have to address an issue that has scarcely been touched on, namely respect for British identity, not only through flags, anthems and symbols, but also probably through political structures. The Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol, apart from anything else, could be seen as an attempt to address the issue of identity, to find a balance between those on the one hand who have been deprived against their wishes of their membership of the European Union and those on the other who don't accept that Brexit should have any consequences for trade with the United Kingdom. There is some irony in the fact that many unionists who legitimately oppose Irish unity say that everyone in Northern Ireland must be made to feel comfortable there, yet they insist on the one thing more than anything which would upset and alienate nationalists and increase support for Irish unity, namely the abolition of the Brexit protocol, which was the inevitable consequence, with the inevitable consequence of a border on this island. It is valuable that the people of Northern Ireland retain many of the rights of European citizenship and that the Irish government has agreed to continue to fund the participation of students from Northern Ireland in the EU Erasmus programme, a practical measure, but also a positive message about identity. I have offered you today some reflections on the four main, often overlapping, areas in which issues of identity have come across my path during my diplomatic career. Europe, the United Kingdom, British-Irish relations and Northern Ireland. It is in the nature of identity that some of you may draw different conclusions from the same relationships and events. I would add briefly that the importance of identity has been evident also in the other places to which my diplomatic career has taken me, as I'm sure would be true for the experience of all my colleagues. My first posting was to Luxembourg, whose people are very protective of their identity. With a large immigrant population and surrounded by larger countries, Luxembourgers have worked hard to retain their distinctiveness. In the 1950s, Luxembourg turned down the offer to provide the permanent location for all of the then fledgling European institutions, advised apparently by the local Catholic Church on the grounds that it would pose a threat to national identity. Particularly traumatic for Luxembourg had been the action of the Third Reich in not merely occupying the country, but in purporting to incorporate it into Germany. When I arrived in Luxembourg in 1980, several members of its parliament belonged to a party that still represent, represented the so-called Enrolle de Force, Luxembourgers conscripted against their will into the German army. During the war, a census was conducted by the Germans in which Luxembourgers were instructed that they could not state their nationality or language to be Luxembourgish. The overwhelming majority of the population courageously ignored the instruction and asserted their identity. Luxembourg is a good example of a country that understands that there is no contradiction between treasuring a national identity and vindicating that identity in a wider European project. If only others closer to home who should know better had retained the confidence to share that wisdom. To live in Belgium, as I later did when working in the EU institutions, is again to experience a society dominated by competing Flemish and Walloon identities. At the same time, however, it was not uncommon to see Belgian flags flown from private houses and apartments as well as at international football matches, an assertion by many Belgians of their attachment to their shared Belgian identity. It was also to witness again how the European Union provides the example, the context and the possibility for the reconciliation of difference. Later, during my posting in Malaysia, I could see that identity is at the heart of that society too, with its rich amalgam of ethnic groups, Malay, Chinese, Indian and others. While the groups have quite distinct identities and live much of their lives according to different religions or customs, Malaysia is in many respects a model of ethnic diversity, respect and tolerance. The obvious earlier intermarriage between the groups, somewhat at odds with the modern narrative of distinctiveness, was a reminder that identity is more complex than it appears. Italy, my final posting, also had some tales to tell about identity. The success of the Roman Empire, the greatest the world had yet seen, was founded largely on the acceptance of ethnic diversity, on the integration of foreigners and on the widespread granting of citizenship. Modern Italy is largely constructed on its regional identities. The 19th centuries of King Victor Emmanuel and Garibaldi in every Italian piazza and the ubiquitous street names in their honour are not so much a reflection of the reality of Italian unity as, on the contrary, a recognition of the need to aspire and work towards that unity. 
The issue of flags has come up several times in Marimarks today. The flags to which we give allegiance touch our hearts, but they can also disconcert and divide us. One thinks of the flags draped over the coffin, over coffins that impact on us in contradictory ways. It is striking how people who are willing to disrespect their country leap so readily to wave their country's flag. One thinks of Brexit Party MEPs waving their union jacks while turning their backs in disrespect to a flag of reconciliation, bringing shame on their own flag and country. One also thinks of anti-lockdown protesters in, this country, protesters in this country who claim to be Irish patriots while sullying the tricolour with their ignorance. The British government decided a few months ago that the Union Jack is to be flown on civic buildings every day, although not in Northern Ireland. It is a flag as noble as any other. However, I was struck by an article in The Observer which suggested that the recent initiative, which might a decade ago have looked like a gesture towards national harmony, today seemed designed to emphasise discord, a gauntlet to Scotland and Wales, a victory parade of those who prevailed in the EU referendum. Far more attractive, to me at least, was the clip of Angela Merkel being handed a German flag at a party political rally and setting it deliberately aside. In conclusion, I would offer some very brief tentative conclusions. Some of you may, of course, see things differently. Identity is deeply important to us. It is usually more complex than we realise. When we man the barricades, metaphorical or otherwise, we necessarily oversimplify who we are. It is possible to cherish and be enriched by overlapping identities. Respect for identity lies at the heart of every tolerant society, every international organisation and every peace process. Flags can say important things about us, but they're damn tricky. And diplomacy is about both the assertion of its own identity and respect for the identity of others. Seamus Heaney famously wrote, My passport's green. No glass of ours was ever raised to toast the Queen an uncontroversial sentiment for anyone from a nationalist background. In 2011, Seamus was rightly seated at the head table at the state dinner in honour of Queen Elizabeth in Dublin Castle, a diplomatic occasion to mark mutual respect between our countries. It goes without saying that Seamus raised his glass to toast the Queen's health. That, in a nutshell, is what diplomacy is about. A few hundred years ago, Robert Emmett appealed to the judges in the Green Street Courthouse for what he called the charity of silence. The charity of my own silence is, alas, not something that the invitation to deliver this lecture has allowed me to afford you today. I am grateful, however, for your attention and your patience in permitting me to set out some personal reflections on diplomacy and the complex issue of identity. Woody Allen, speaking of identity, once remarked, my only regret in life is that I'm not someone else. It is not a regret I have ever shared, either as a person or as a diplomat representing Ireland abroad. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this lecture of the 2021 Green Street Lecture Series. We hope you enjoy the remaining talks, which will be available on YouTube to view and wherever you get your podcasts.